Well, my mom doesn't remember Woodstock, which means she was there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to ruirogues.com slash newrelic. This episode was brought to you by Waza, Heroku's one-day celebration of art and technique. Join Matt, Aaron Patterson, and more on February 28th in San Francisco. Use exclusive code READY-ROGUES-13 for $50 off registration at Waza. That's W-A-Z-A Hey everybody and welcome to episode 94 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray. Hello everyone. Avdi Grimm. Hey from Pennsylvania. David Brady. Hey everybody. I'm really excited to be here today because I've been stalking ERA for about seven years now. And the closest <laughs> I've come is uh, I filled in for him at Mountain West RubyConf last year when he couldn't make it to the conference. I took his speaker slot. So the closest you've ever gotten is him not being there? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. We also have Katrina Owen. Hi. I'm very excited to be here today because I missed the last two episodes due to being stuck in a time travel paradox. Wow. Ouch. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. You have one week left to sign up for Rails Ramp Up. And we have a special guest. That is Era. Era T. Howard, is that how you want to be introduced? That, that'll do just fine. All right. Since you haven't been on the show before, do you want to tell people who you are? I am Era T. Howard. Um, I'm the CTO of CodeForPeople.com, uh, which was my first consulting company, which is and has been a partner of Dojo4.com. We're a software and creative agency in Boulder, Colorado. Awesome. How long have you been doing Ruby, Ira? A oh. long time. <laughs> yeah, um, I I forget what Ruby Conf I was at. One of the ones in Denver here, I think, when there was two or three people that raised their hands that were getting paid to be full time Rubyists, um, and I was I was one of those people. It's definitely one of the, for a handful of people to be doing it professionally. I was actually a research associate. Um, with the Cooperative Institute for Research in the Earth Sciences, which is uh, at CU Boulder here, working at NOAA in uh, Forecast Systems Laboratory, and which is a huge research facility here. There's thousands of people that work there. And I introduced Ruby to that building after swearing, trying to install, uh, oh, what was it, uh, libdubdubdub for Perl, trying to do some network stuff, and unpacked Ruby, TarGZ, configure, make, make, install, and started doing a bunch of network stuff, you know, because it uh, came with good HTTP support out of the box. And that was, uh, wow, I want to say pre-1.4, something, something like that. Wow. wow. We, we, were, we were talking last, last week uh, in the after show about you and we were we were talking about what ruby what version of ruby you had started on and i think we had guessed maybe 1.6 or 1.5 so yeah we lose <laughs> no it was it was real i mean i was checking it out you know from from svn i think at the time and or man it might have even been cvs now that i think about it but <laughs> yeah and um 
you know, I pulled up, uh, pulled up the docs, you know, the docs for the standard lib were quite good and just started doing my daily tasks in it at NOAA and I, I never looked back. Just basically one day switched 100% from C++ and Fortran and Java and Perl and all that crap and just basically started doing everything in, in Ruby and occasionally when I needed to dropping back into C. But uh, I don't think I've ever programmed anything in anger in other languages, you know, except where necessary since then. And that was, I don't know, 12 years ago, something like that. It's hard for me to remember. So. Wow. so so, basically what you're saying is Matt has been doing Ruby for 20-something years, and you've been doing it for 25-plus-something years. <laughs> <laughs> Some, something like that, yeah. Yeah, it was a small, uh, IRC was small back then. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> IRC, yeah, IRC was, was IR. They, they hadn't even gotten <laughs> that. To put some perspective on it, I think Avdi and I have seniority around here, and I'm pretty sure both of us were learning Ruby from Aaron T. Howard way back when. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on the Ruby yeah. Talk mailing list. Era, so. I'm 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 super excited about this episode because Era is is uh, one of my all time Ruby heroes. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, I've been, you know, when I look at when I look at over my history of using Ruby. And I look at you know whose whose code I've been using apart from you know Ruby itself. The the one name that comes up over and over more than anybody else is, is Aira because he's he's released so many just generally useful little gems. You know that I just I keep coming back to it. You know so many projects they'll have you know they'll have various you know task specific gems, but then they'll have a few of of Aira's gems because they're 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 always useful. You know things like the Open Four gem or or the the Fatcher gem, how we pronounce that, or main uh, for command line utilities, and just goes on and on and on. Array fields. Tags. Yeah. I don't know if I've used that one, but uh, I think I'm aware of it. Um, it it's it just, was like, uh, what was that one? Was it Markaby? Yeah, same, same concept, just DSL for creating um, HTML. It takes a slightly different, it's similar to Markaby. The main difference with tags is um, just the, the method naming strategy makes the DSL unambiguous, so it's more useful as a as as a mix in it. It doesn't pollute your name space and you can so you can always generate tags, for example, a P tag, right? Like doesn't collide with a method name. So um, but yeah, very similar. And um, we use that one a lot internally, just like uh, in in presenters. We we uh, we don't use any helpers at all in our Rails apps, and we have super, super thin controllers, very fat presenter and conductor objects, so we do qu quite a bit of programmatic HTML generation, um, just, you know, keeping the RB views super, super clean and light, so... We do use tags. My favorite my, of, of my gems, and I have, God, I don't even know, I think I have more than 150 at this point. My One of my favorite ones that I just use all over the place is Map, which is less important than it used to be now that hashes are ordered. It was one of my big disappointments, actually, the improvements in hash in 193 were not significant enough. Map is, at, at, at a gross level, it's like hash with indifferent access, except much better. Hash with indifferent access kind of breaks down when you start inheriting and, and, and really using it heavily. So it's a better implementation of that. It's also ordered, but it's also a tree structure, so it supports, like, nested set operations. So for example, set, you know, deeply comma nested comma key to a value and it'll auto vivify on the way down, right? Um, and we use that because, well, the reasons that I, that I use it so heavily is one, you know, I've spent way too much of my life 
with somebody's stupid option parsing code that's not string symbol indifferent. You know, it's like, why, why I'm passing that option in? And of course you're not because you pulled it in from a config file and it's very fashionable to use symbols, um, which is a very sad side effect of the Rails, the Rails boom. Um, Indeed. And, yeah, and so we just have all this code that's just like, uh, you know, your config is always coming in from outside. Strings, you got to type one more character, whatever. Um, so map is is indifferent that way. But the other reason we use it a lot is I'm a big fan of our controllers and our Rails applications at Dojo for I shouldn't say never, but almost never pass models to the view. I like to be able to say to front end guys like you shall not, you you cannot do an M plus one query. So the data is prepared, right? Like you have a data structure and. We have a, a presenter conductor library that we use um, that I wrote called DAO. It sounds esoteric, stands for data access objects, very old data pattern. It's been around forever. And one of the fundamental problems of passing pure data to views is just that you end up with a lot of, you know, say it's say it's a hash, right? Pretend it's a hash. If you have deeply nested data, a tree of data, you end up with a lot of like if the hash has this key, then you can index, you know, into it the next level. Anyways, MAP supports that, those kinds of retrieve deeply nested keys and don't go boom with a nil object error. Um, and so it's the backbone of the data structures that the DAO library uses for the presenter and conductor objects that it implements. So if you guys haven't figured it out from that conversation right there about the best way in the world to level up 16 levels in Ruby is go read any one of Aero's libraries. Just crack open yes. the code and start reading through it. Yes. It's, I swear, every awesome system programming trick I know of, I learned from uh, reading Slave and uh, stuff like that, which are libraries he didn't even talk about just there. So, yep. uh, Old school Unix stuff. <laughs> old school Unix stuff, that's right. You, you do a lot of that kind of um, file locking and, uh, you know, uh, process communication and stuff like that. Talk to us about... RQ. I remember that project from a long time ago, and it was really fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's funny, actually. Um, Jeremy Heingardner, uh, copious free time on Twitter, is um, helping me out, do a little consulting work. I it, So Dojo 4 right now, I mean, we do mostly web stuff. I mean, we're building tablet applications, iOS applications, Rails apps, of course. But, and we're, we're not doing a lot of low-level system stuff anymore, which, you know, my background is in supercomputing. I helped build what was, at that time, the biggest supercomputer in the world, which is Jet, when I was at, no, I helped with some of the... The systems for that ported a couple weather models to that system, which is basically writing lots of Ruby that programmatically wrote lots of Fortran and C code generation stuff. And I switched groups after a while, and I was at the National Geophysical Data Center, which is the nighttime lights group. If you've ever seen a picture of the world at night from space, everybody's seen those. Um, I made that, and I can assert that because there's only two developers that work in that group. There's only That's one awesome. data set. And, um, yeah, it was really fun stuff. Um, Heavy-duty data processing. I mean, lots of people, you know, big data is fashionable then, but that word didn't even exist then. There, you, you certainly couldn't provision EC2 nodes in the, you know, on AWS. At the time, we were building the compute clusters for NGDC. And so the system administrators, the IT group, genius guys that they are, had said, you know, you guys can't have, you know, as Cray supercomputers at the time and SGI supercomputers. 
um, you can't have that anymore. We're going to buy a bunch of commodity Linux boxes, and we're going to, and you can use those. But because of the draconian security restrictions that they had, there was actually no way to program them. So they were like, "Here's 50 boxes, coordinate them." And so the research group that I was working for at the time, primarily scientists, not developers, were, you know, they were SSHing in and like running lots of jobs, right? It was just insanity. And so we looked at, you know, how do you coordinate these? And, you know, there's this, at the time, this may sound funny to some young developers, but, you know, there weren't things like Redis and queuing systems, you know, that, that you could just pull off your shelf and use at the time. And even if there had been, uh, the security policies were quite strict in the government. So, like, just opening a port is non-trivial to do. So we looked at a bunch of solutions. I forget what the Sun, SGE, Sun Grid Engine. They called it grid computing back then. I, I don't know why that went out of fashion. But anyways, for coordinating these nodes, and we had a bunch of fundamental uh, pieces of code that we needed to write. And the first one was, you know, it's a queuing system, right? Like, put a job into a queue and have someone run it. So RQ, which stands for RubyQ, um, was built on built on a, um, some really good, uh, really good pieces of software. Some of the best Ruby gems out there, um, and C code. It uses SQLite under the hood to manage its queue. And in our configuration, that queue actually lived on NFS. And although it sounds insane, the architecture it's a pull architecture. So every node simply works as fast as they can to you know, read from the database and atomically acquire, you know, mark a job as, as being run. And so it's command line tools. Uh, the, the RQ is, uh, is, is basically a, a pretty, pretty robust command line tool for applications to be able to submit jobs and manage an NFS mounted queue. And that system has been, we're right now porting it uh, to a new Red Hat Enterprise version and from 32-bit to 64-bit. But that system has been running 24-7 unmanned for nearly eight years. So the system uses RQ. There, there's a bunch of uh, nodes that are, it's basically pulling on a classified data feed, satellite feed. Tons of data is coming down off these DMSP satellites. And then there's a bunch of worker nodes that are, uh, you know, processing the data. It's, just, it's quite a sophisticated processing pipeline. The back, one of the backbones of it. Um, the other one is this code called Durwatch, which is, you know, something lands in a directory and notice it. And it's also built on SQLite, so it can survive a, a reboot. Um, it's built on RQ. And, you know, we we tested that system very, very heavily, um, as in walk into the room and power it off and have it come back up. And it's just, there used to be a group of five people running that satellite ingest system. And now it just has sat there and run untouched. Um, 100% uptime for eight years. That's crazy. So, Era, you've you you, you you've just described all this infrastructure that you built out for image processing and satellite image stuff. Um, so I was getting into Ruby in 2005, mm-hmm. and that's when Hurricane Katrina hit. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I wonder if you could talk for a little bit. You, you have worked on arguably the coolest Ruby project ever. Um <laughs> Could you talk about how you used all that processing power for the power of good? Well, brief aside, I, I uh, 
one uh, one nice thing if you're into downloading MP3s and have a really heavy duty networking <laughs> infrastructure, yeah. I'll just stop that right there. But um, so it wasn't all good. Um, I, I, I oh, do, this is me how we used it for email story. Got it. I did a lot of Napster back in the day. Yeah, if some of my if if you uh, look for hype.rb or MP3 scrape or um, there's some there's some fun fun code that I released uh, when I was working for the government. Um, in any case, uh, yeah, so, so basically there were that, that when I was working at NGDC, there was two main systems that we had. One's the smaller cluster that does the real-time, near real-time satellite data processing. And that's less image processing and more about uh, collating satellite data and geolocating it and, you know, adding various bits of post-processing to it to clean it up. Technically, they are images, but uh, they're raw images. So not normally what, what people would consider image processing. And then there was another uh, compute cluster called CF. First word is cluster. I'll let you guess what the other word <laughs> is. And, uh, <laughs> and that cluster is the research cluster. And so they use, uh, they use uh, that group uses that cluster to basically take a bunch of data and submit big jobs over it to produce images. Um, what, you know, at the end of the day, it's an image. Um, and if, actually, if you Google my name in like Linux Journal, we wrote an article about this because the, the data sets, um, the way that it explodes during the intermediate steps, it's really quite remarkable. And so that particular article was about a change image. So like it's an image of the United States and the change is represented by like the R channel. So like cities that get bigger are redder, you know, so it's an RGB image um, of the United States. Looks pretty simple, just showing population growth over a number of years, I think five years, three years, something like that. And, you know, like, so the kinds of jobs that we would submit are, you know, they would basically take the satellite data and do all kinds of crazy operations over it, like trying to find cloud-free stuff, determining moonlit cloud tops, you know, distinguishing moonlit cloud tops from um, actual lights. So, like, moonlit cloud tops have, like, the thermal band, you know, they're, they're colder than lights on the ground, right? Wow. So you can distinguish them, all kinds of processing like that. But and if you look at... So the, you're, you're tracking civilization via light pollution, essentially, yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, you think about it, people, they, they think satellites, satellites are amazing, right? Like they can see the color of, you know, the hair on the back of your neck, but only if you tell them where to go, because the data sets they collect are so large, it's not like they're continuously scanning, you know, all the entire earth. And so you, for, for most high quality satellites, you need to know a priori where to collect data, right? They send up instructions, mm -hmm. right? Collect data over Iraq tomorrow. The DMSP oh, cool. satellites continuously collect data. They're polar orbiting. They orbit the world, I think, 14 times a day, something like that. And so they're continually collecting data, and they can detect nighttime lights, assuming they're not covered by clouds. It's actually quite a big factor. But see, if you think about it, as sophisticated as remote sensing is, and this actually just recently changed with the launch of the VIRS satellite, but there's really no data set that measures man. It's kind of a crazy idea of everything that we measure, we can, like, we can detect you know, a, a boreal forest from, you know, tundra. But we can't detect man because what's the signal for man? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, I mean, you, yeah, you could approximate it with like pavement or something. But, you know, light, though, at night, at night, that uniquely identifies human civilization on the planet. 
Um, so it really is a linear proxy for a lot of like human activities. So like research has been done to show like that light has a linear correlation with GDP, right? Um, so you can get the numbers on, you know, how the economy is doing in India two years later after it occurred um, or how population growth is occurring right after the census. But you can get it in, in real time by just using light as a proxy for man. Um, so it's quite a unique data set. Anyways, but it was specific to your, you know, your question about Hurricane Katrina, there was, it was a similar process. I, we actually did change images over Hurricane Katrina. And at the time, we were, it was funny, uh, if you think about who was in the White House, we had news groups and everybody asking us for, for these images because, so there's a power outage, right, after Hurricane Katrina. How do you get information out of an area where the power's out? You don't. I mean, nothing. Light pollution. Yeah, nothing comes out of an area where the power is just devastated. You know, not phone, not computer. And so the only way that the only, and this is abnormal because usually after a storm, you know, it's still covered by clouds, so you can't see it. But in Katrina's case, storm came in and went out. We could see the lights. And so we were able to monitor the extent of the power outage, which was significant. And then basically update it every day. And if you Google like Katrina and I don't know, DMSP and my name, we'll, you, we actually, those loops are still up on the government website, of course, they never change anything. Um, and you can, and so we were actually providing those reports initially to like news offices because they were right on it. But, um, and this says something about the administration at that time, about three days later, they called up, gee, can you, you know, tell us the extent of the the damage of the storm it's like yes it's been on our website for 72 hours you can get it like everyone else um but they were using that to monitor the extent of the storm and we were doing some of that processing i mean a lot of the heavy lifting of course is in c or idl interactive data language um fortran but we were actually doing some i mean all the pro all the pipeline all the orchestration was done by ruby but some of the low level stuff too so I had a few C, C extensions, but we were also doing some crazy stuff with MMAP, basically, which um, for those of us old timers, that was a very nice Ruby wrapper over the Unix memory mapping code that Guy de Coup, Guy, I guess, if you're French, rest in peace, uh, wrote. And we were using his code to basically map in huge images and... Uh, so for those of you that don't know how memory mapping works, when you map in an image, it just gives you access to a file as if it's in memory, and so you just address it. But the operating system manages reading it in. So if you have to do, say, a kind of image processing where you have an image that's one um, huge, right, like 64 gigs or whatever, and you only need to touch parts of it. So you might have some algorithm that's seeking around or whatever. Naively, you would just read the whole thing into memory. But with MMAP, you can basically just say, okay, virtually have access to the whole thing, right, pointer in memory, and then just do your manipulations, and the operating system will manage paging in, paging out, the parts of the file that you would have to seek to or read to. So we were doing some image processing like that, actually, in Ruby, because, uh, not because Ruby's fast per se, but because that strategy of only touching the parts of the image that we needed to, and that's in this case, it was like little parts of the header of these records, um, was faster than like reading the whole thing in and see, and you know, and then and then proceeding to process this giant in-memory object. So, 
And that's a common pattern that you see, you know, like you can have, when you have a language that provides higher level abstractions, you can try trickier algorithms. Like, mm -hmm. why wouldn't I spawn up eight processes that use IPC to talk to each other that won't let the children be zombied because they have a sophisticated methodology of, you know, the parent having a heartbeat, uh, or the child having a heartbeat to the parent. Things that, you know, yes, you could do in C, but you know, you'd have to fall. You'd fall on the sword before you finish. Finish it. It just the complexity is too high. So I think that's something that's generally overlooked in scientific or high performance computing is that high performance computing requires high level of abstraction, and that's what makes languages like Ruby or even Python good. It's not that they're fast. It's that you can have high levels of abstraction. So that's really interesting what you just said because the whole time I've been sitting here listening to you talk and I've been thinking, so you used Ruby in a situation where you needed robust code that ran forever. You used Ruby in a situation where you were processing massive amounts of data. You used Ruby you know, in, in all of these things that I'm pretty sure if we said it to most Ruby programmers, they would tell you, oh, Ruby's a bad choice for that. Yeah, Eric, didn't anybody tell you that Ruby doesn't scale? Yeah, right. did, you, did you just not get the memo or what? <laughs> well, the we other thing, got the memo. <laughs> the, the other thing is, is that I, I've actually worked on apps that, uh, in one way or another, didn't scale well in Ruby, and sometimes it was limitations of Rails or Ruby or whatever. But sometimes, you know, it's it's my fault. So yeah, I'm I'm really curious to know how you make it that robust. So yeah, I mean it. It's just architecture at the end of the day, right? I mean, and so you, for example, there's, I mean, there's fundamental principles of, of systems, of trying to make large-scale systems that it doesn't matter what language you're working in. It's just that when you're designing those systems and you're trying to implement some of those important paradigms, a lot of times developers give up because they're too hard to implement. So we'll take RQ, for example, and it has this queue, right? Queue of jobs. And I wanted it to be durable across reboots. And some systems, not, not so much now, but this is back then, right? Like they may, there were, there were systems that used to, you know, have memory map queues and various things that would, you know, when the, when the machine would crash, they would come up and it would be corrupt, right? Even MySQL at the time, that, that was back in the day where with InnoDB, like your, your MySQL node might be okay after a machine crash and, you may have to recover the database. Now, at that time, SQLite, which is still a freaking amazing piece of software, I mean, it's if you want to learn C, that is a very good piece of code to read. But it's incredibly robust as well. And so, so that was a case where I'm like, okay, I'm going to use that for my queue because it has the ability to recover after a reboot. It manages that queue on disk even on NFS, which, you know, is not recommended, but it's so good that I'll go ahead and use the APIs to that to build over my queue. Um, so there, you know, so there's an example of a good architectural pattern, which is why don't we put our queue into something that's persistent and safe that it would have been a little bit, and let's just say I was writing in C, that would start to get a little bit painful because, you know, constructing SQL queries and aka string manipulation, and building all that tooling, it would have been a little bit harder, and I would have been tempted just to use something that, you know, is very simple, like BDB, right, Berkeley Database, or something like that, where I'm, I'm basically just passing data structures around. Maybe now I would use Redis or something like that, but that didn't exist back then. 
Um, so like that code, uh, so another that's another example, like that piece of Ruby code um, had uh, has, has an exponential back off with reset for the way that it acquires a lock. So try, 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 try really hard and then back off. Try, try, try really hard, back off exponentially longer. Try, try, try real hard. Okay, at this point, like, we've become very impatient and we're going to get impatient again, right? Reset. And so, like, something like that, like a simple exponential back off, when you're writing, like, in Java or C or something that's verbose, you're like, you just don't. You just write something like, you know, I'll just try every 10 seconds because that loop is really easy to retry the loop because I don't want to write that much code. And I certainly don't want to write a class to encapsulate that and start using that exponential back off all over. But in a real system, of course, what happens is all the people, right, the system starts thrashing. So the network goes down and then everybody Try, let's just say everybody goes to sleep and then everybody comes back up and tries 10 seconds later. That's like what a naive system does. But to like make it durable, of course you want to interleave that, right? So you want, you want it to like be responsive, right? Like I don't want to miss getting the lock by a millisecond. That's why try a couple times in rapid succession. But at this point, if I didn't get it, mm, acquiesce and sleep for a random, it, it, you know, wasn't just exponential backup, but it was exponential backup plus randomness so that when 18 nodes come back up, and of course their clocks are all, you know, synchronized, right? So they're all trying, they would be trying at roughly the same time. When the system's having trouble, you don't want that. You don't want the system to start to thrash. So that's the kind of algorithm that, like, you'd think about it. It would be sweet, you know, wouldn't it be sweet if our system did that? And you're like, yes, and I don't have a week to write that in C. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I want to... And, and, and ultimately what you want is a system that works. You don't want to have to care about that. Exactly. And, 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 and the beauty of it is, is that you've just solved the philosopher's dining problem. <laughs> but you didn't want to have to. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You, want, you want fed philosophers. That's yep. all you care about. You didn't want to have to care on how the philosophers got fed. You just wanted to make sure they all got fed. Yeah. And, and, it, yeah. and Job or C, you have to care. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, is, is that true? Well, no. You don't have to care if you if you expend the effort to do the architecture right. You don't have correct. to care. But I think you're touching on something that I've experienced, which is that in Java or C, you will end up caring because the architecture bleeds through very very easily. And with Ruby, you're almost forced by the fact that Ruby doesn't scale. You're mm -hmm. almost forced to make the architecture scale right. Right, right. And, you know, another classic example of this, probably closer to, you know, most people, most of the people who are listening's heart is, you know, say caching, right? So, like, caching is, like, super hard to reason about, you know? And if you don't have a high-level abstraction, right? So, you know, let's just say, um, you know, you have revisioned hash keys, right? So, you put your Git rev in your hash keys in your app, and... You know, in a Rails app with Ruby, it's, it, you know, with, there's minimal interfaces to the cache. And like, let's just say you do that. That gives you like all these sweet properties, right? Like if you deploy, you automatically in, invalidate the cache because your Git rev is in that key. And when you roll back, you know, the cache will still be warm for the old version. You know, th these are simple ideas and they seem, you know, they're, these are not new ideas for, web developers, but it's those kinds of things that they get hard to reason about when you don't have high levels of abstraction, like cache write, cache read, and some global configuration of cache key prefix. 
hey, why don't we put the Git rev in there? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what allows you to have a caching strategy that you can actually wrap your head around. You know, it, 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 it is that abstraction power. And guess what? I mean, caching still, you know, that is, is still the way to make a website fast. It's not actually making your application answer requests real, real fast. It's right. about minimizing the number of requests. Um, asset pipeline, right? Another great example. Like, wouldn't it be sweet if we had a tool chain that, like, uh, fingerprinted our assets so that it knew if it had to add them to the new bundle? And every time we deployed, uh, everything got bundled up in one file. I mean, we do this. We do all our requires in, in application.js and um, uh, style sheets, application CSS. So, like, we just do that. We're like, of course you have one request for CSS and JavaScript. Like, right. why wouldn't you? It's easy, you know, with that stack. But that stack, if you think about that code and, you know, oh, I mean, it's a dependency chain. It's quite complicated. And then, oh, by the way, we don't actually want that to happen in development mode. We want everything exploded so that you can interact in the debugger. Oh, and by the way, we want this to be transparent when we deploy, giving the person the op- you know, the ability to compile it on the server or pre-compile it locally and have the deployment fail. This is hard. Like you just don't roll up your sleeves and write this in a week in Java or C. But in Ruby, you totally can. Like yep. whatever. So, I mean it's so, not that bad. So I, I have I have this question that I want to ask and I, I'm gonna preface it by saying that I I talk to people that basically come to things you, you use the word design and that's what kind of triggered this. And mm-hmm. and the reason is is that uh, a lot of people say, well, we do agile, and so they they kind of shy away from doing any design before they start working. And mm-hmm. it sounds like what you're saying is you have to think about these problems to at least some degree, and and I happen to agree with that um, before you really start digging in. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering where where is that balance? Where where do you find yourself? with the thinking about and kind of mapping out the problem before you get started versus, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word agile, but, you know, kind of dynamically yeah. just building it up on the fly and, and kind of exploring the problem that way. Right. So that's a great question. We just uh, wrote some code that we put on uh, a machine, a uh, big server, Dell, whatever, I don't even remember, some meaty thing that's getting shipped to a remote location. They're going to be testing in a lab and they're going to fire it up, configure it on their network and the thing's just supposed to work. So like I can't deploy code to it again. So I just wrote a script that actually synchronizes. So, so here's an example, right? Like, well, backing up a step. I'm, I'm, I was, I was an XP guy back in the day. Um, I was writing tests for, I was writing test driven C code, running everything in the debugger, 15 years ago. Um, so I'm familiar with test, you know, test-driven development. Uh, but I'm, I'm quite disappointed in today's crop of TDD adherents because they think, you know, it's a panacea. They think it actually eliminates the need to think because code coverage and CI and their tests, that it, it, it eliminates their responsibility as developers. And um, but I have a green bar. Yeah, it's exactly. You know, it still it still doesn't. You know, just because the the user like put this story in and you implemented it precisely. I actually just blogged about this the other day, right? It's like, say you got to write a system that models triangles, and the agile, you know, like the, the current crop of agile developers, which 
you know, are not adhering to the Agile manifesto at all. Uh, that's a, you know, in my belief. <laughs> they're, Ag- you know, Agile butt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're, you know, they're implementing the system to build the triangles, the, the two kind the user asks for, and they're not stopping to truly understand the problem, right, and say derive the Pythagorean theorem. They're not actually stopping to do that because if they had other solutions may suggest themselves. So they're, they're focused on the trees and not the forest. And I don't like, I guess the reason I don't like doing that is I actually don't like writing code. I hate programming. I, I mean, I hate computers. I don't use them for anything personal. And I hate programming. It's like I'm sitting pressing plastic buttons like a rat to get paid. I don't like programming computers. I like solving problems, however. And computer is a tool that I use to do that, and that's fine. But because I don't actually enjoy, like, computer systems, um, I don't, you know, I don't play video games, I don't surf the net, you know, I don't hang out on Facebook, really, you know, I'm like, I, I, I don't enjoy computers fundamentally. I want to solve a problem once, I want to understand it, abstract it, solve it, and then I'm done with that. The enjoyment is out of it. You know, if I have to do it again, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really enjoy it. And so... When I'm looking at a system, I'm not looking at like, what do I need to do to get the test to pass, to commit it? I'm looking at what is the problem here? What's the abstraction? I want to do this. I want to solve it once and then move on with my life and never come back to this again, mm-hmm. which, you know, is impossible, but that's, that's the goal. And so I think that's so with the system that we just deployed um, in this airport. So I'm writing the synchronization script. So it's basically, you know, synchronizing files, right? It's not super sophisticated. But some of the things that I decided architecturally were, so these files, of course, reside, you know, we have a server in the cloud, and you can access it, and there's APIs and all this. But I was like, you know what? I don't want to know that the server's up. I don't want to handle that. So what I did instead is I decided that I would decouple the location of the files from the API. So in other words, instead of the agent asking the API, what files do I need, which it, it unambiguously knows. It's the master. The nodes are stateless, right? That was a design decision. The nodes are stateless. It will ask master, what should I do? And it will just blindly do it. So I wanted that property. It's stateless. But then I didn't want, I didn't want, to, I didn't want to introduce an HA requirement at the server level. I'm like, I don't really care if the server's up. Right, the remote CDN can continue to serve files and function just fine, even if the server's down. And so I decoupled that by I said the server will actually create a manifest and put it on S3. Right, so every agent has its own bucket. So the file is a YAML file. I could have chose JSON, but just because I'm looking at them uh, as a human being, I prefer YAML in that situation. But anyway, so the the server actually creates the instruction set, right, that of what to do and puts it up on S3, which Granted, could be down, but right, like it never happens. It's like I got nine nines with no infrastructure. So the agent actually pulls S3 for its instruction set and then brings those, brings those files down. Now, when it's bringing it down, of course, those are network operations. And so, you know, I have some things built in because I'm not going to be able to see a bug and update this. I'm like, the network, it's not when it's going to fail. Their local network is going to fail, not S3. It will be down. So what should I do then? Like, you know, and so I have I have an exponential retrying back off is is what occurs where it's like it'll try a certain amount of time, and then eventually it'll log the error. 
And that comes, that comes, you know, comes back to another idea. How will I know what this agent is doing in the field? You know, I might naively say, oh, I'll have an API and it'll report its status back. But then I'll have to debug like the API being down versus the agent being down. You know, I have two points of failure instead of one. And so what I did is I actually made the script, which is running under cron, it actually ships its logs back up to S3 under the same bucket with a date, you know, dated strategy. It only ships logs if they're non-empty. The logging is pretty quiet. So, so now that just literally in transmit, I'll be able to tell when that node comes up and it'll automatically ship its logs back to S3. And so that, that system's like totally decoupled from the server and um, is, you know, has an independent like uptime profile. Um, so that was an example of like just thinking through like, yeah, the network's going to be down. And yes, I need for it to report back. And I don't know what's going to happen. And so, for example, there's an ad exit handler that says, if I'm exiting and the error is not the system exit, be sure to catch that thing in the log. Because if your script is logging and it goes boom, that exception doesn't go into the log, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, that's a very common mistake. You know, yeah. like I'm logging everything, but it died. And you're like, well, you didn't log that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there is exactly one case when I will not hunt you down and stab you for rescuing exception, and that is around the outside of Maine. And, yeah, you, know, you, and it's you don't basically, have to rescue it though. Ara actually gave the way to do it uh, there. It's kind of hard to follow, but um, you set an at exit handler in Ruby, yeah. and if Ruby is going down because of an exception, then the uh, global dollar error bang info. Yeah, dollar bang. Yeah, that variable is non-new. It holds the exception that you're dying with. So you put in an at exit handler and um, uh, check that variable. We use it in tons of places. I learned that trick from Aero, of course. And uh, we use it in tons of places, like when I did a lot of work on TextMate. And uh -huh. you would do things like uh, run some script by pressing Apple R and TextMate then uh, we would figure out if you exited normally, if you died by error by injecting that at exit handler. And that way, if you died by error, we could grab the stack trace and hyperlink it back to your code. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And Shameless you know, self-promotion that, that uh, technique is covered in an exceptional Ruby. Oh, yeah. So, cool. so now, David, will hunt you down if you rescue exception yes. anywhere. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, don't you know, that's, don't uh, rescue I, exception, kids. I'll probably upset some people here, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of rescuing object. I do it all over the place. I, this code I'm looking at right now has it in, in, in four places. And so that's, so that's a very different philosophy. Now, now having said that, I rescuing do believe... Rescuing object? Yeah. It's the same thing as rescuing exception. Okay. All right. Right, right. It just... Yeah, rescue exception is ugly. I, I don't like... I just like rescue object <laughs> for some reason. It just... It's prettier to read. Uh, and I, I'm a big... I'm a big fan of the shape of code. Having, I, I really feel like code has a shape to it that it actually has an aesthetic value. You know, one of the reasons that I wrote main and like my main scripts, I, I'm still a big fan of using begin at the end of code to like do mundane setup. I really, if I open up in a command line script and I'm not immediately reading what it does, it's just categorically fail. Like, I, I'm just going to refactor it right then. Like, if there's a bunch of option parsing shit at the beginning of your script, it's just like, oh, my God. You know, like, come on. I want to know what this does. I want the shape of it to indicate what it does. I want, like, a yes. high-level description. Then I want to get into the, the top-level run loop, which is, like, you know, 
get index of files from server, synchronize files locally, you know, uh, big long method names. I hate comments. I absolutely hate comments. I like the code to have a beautiful shape and for it to look like what it does. Yes. So, um, and if and, it's and, a 12-line method and you spend 10 lines doing housekeeping and the two last two lines are the important stuff, right. get rid of the 10 lines. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the main reason I factor things out is just to make it readable. I mean, big methods are actually good, right? Especially in a language like Ruby, it's much, 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 much faster to have huge methods. Um, Well-factored Ruby code makes a deep stack, and a deep stack is slow, unfortunately. How, having said that, I mean, of course, oh, I mean, can, I, can somebody hear sacred hamburger? <laughs> I just heard a sacred cow go on the barbecue grill. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the only one, right? I mean, Aaron's been talking about this. I mean, it, it but, but I, I mean, I do, I do like small methods. It's, it is a reality though, that big methods are, I mean, they are slow. However, that's, that's Matt's problem. That's, that's not my problem, you know, and, and, and I'm not using Ruby for doing high performance tasks, but a big method, you know, that it can be justified. I guess that's all I'm, that's all I'm really saying. So I, ideally at the compiler unrolling step, but whatever. But when it comes to rescuing object, I, you know, I, I was just reviewing somebody's code the other day and it's like they're building up an API response, right? So it's like, Let's just say the API response has three keys. And, you know, it's like step one, run this query, populate this key A. Step two, populate key B. Step three, or, you know, populate key C. And I'm like, no. First, initialize the API, the API response to have the keys A, B, and C. Then populate, overwrite those, right? Like set them to nil or the blank array so that on the client side, you don't have to, like, handle partial API responses. Now, you could just say the thing should 500, but in this case, it was okay for it not to have everything. So it's like, think about the exceptional, the exceptional cases first, and that's why I end up with rescue object a lot. I'm like, look, I really don't care. So for example, I'm, sending, I'm submitting a background job to email somebody on sign up, and I actually have a rescue object thing there. I'm like, at this point, I don't care what went wrong, but I don't want to not tell the user that I didn't email him. He just signed up. I don't want their, you know, I don't want a generic 500 page or whatever. I want to let him know, uh, dude, I did not get your email out. I don't know. The network was down. SMTP library blew up. The database was down when I tried to write the object. Like, I don't really know, but I really want to tell you that I didn't do what you asked me to. And so that's, that's the cases where I'm rescuing object where it's like, do I want to carry on? if this failed. And, you know, from an engineering perspective, you don't. I mean, normally, in most cases, you want an exception to propagate up the stack and your code to die so somebody knows about. But once it comes time to the place where a user's interacting with it, so here's another example. You have a command line script, you give it to normal users, say scientists, right, non-developers, and it prints a stack trace when it fails, you're fired. I mean, come on. Like, Tell them what went wrong. <laughs> you know, a stack trace? Come on. Like, that's just weak sauce. So, so there's, there's the, the cases where you should rescue exceptions is like, what does your user want to happen here? Like, if you're, there, there's huge swaths of code where your user doesn't give a crap what went wrong, but you still want to give them feedback. Mm -hmm. Or it's possible 
say because it's a, a daemony long running process. This is transient. I mean, we all know as developers, all the bugs are transient. You can never reproduce them. Do you want to get paged on Sunday? I'm like, I don't. Like, so it's like, you know, yes, this code should go boom. Like, this should never happen. But if it does, is it reasonable for me to wait a while and reset some things and retry and log it? <laughs> That's big, big caveat import and log it loudly somewhere, like get good notifications. But is it reasonable for the code to keep trying? Like what, what would I do if I was debugging this? If you can answer that question, if you know what you would do, well, that's what computer programs are. I mean, that's the whole point of writing computer programs is to do what you would do. But most people only think of that one level deep. Like, in other words, what's the program supposed to do for me? But then what would I do if I had to log in to debug it on Sunday? If you know what that is and you don't write that code, you're not a software developer. You're not developing the software to be soft, like for human beings. You're just writing the first tier. But you can, in other words, you can program support staff too. You know? <laughs> nice. Why, why not? I've done that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's, you know, that's not always a legitimate strategy, of course. Um, but I think it is more times than, than people think. Like, you know, they, they, they one, know the, the code might fail here, and two, don't do anything about it. Yeah. I have a question about your testing slash documentation. Your gems have kind of a unique style of testing and documentation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Huh. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, I am, I, I, I'm, uh, I, I make the TED people angry sometimes by saying, you know, by ranting about test suites. But I mean, anybody that looks at my work and see, I, I write a lot of unit tests. I'm a, I'm a big fan of it for sure. My style of testing, I guess I, I, I'm a big fan of unit testing and I'm a big fan of functional testing. So for example, um, in libraries um, where there's a lot of complexity, I will have a lot of unit tests. And the tool chain that I'm using very often is I use, it's my own command line script called Rego. There's a very similar one called AK47. So, you know, which is basically a little script that watches for changes in a directory and runs a command, arbitrary, right? This is not fancy. But my style is, you know, I'll have my tests running repeatedly in iTerm and writing my code inside a screen session in terminal. That's just so I can quicksilver back and forth between them. But I have them both up, right? And so anytime the code changes, you know, the test is running. I'm a big fan of always having, like, um, I insist, like, with developers that they're not writing, the, you know, they don't start script server or start running their tests and don't have the logs visually in front of them. Like, I really like people to be seeing the logs as they're going by with database statements just so that they notice things. So I'll have Rego running my tests, unit tests, and then the actual, you know, just so it's running continuously. But then the actual testing methodology that I use, I have a little testing gem um, that I usually just drop in code. And it's a few small hacks on test unit. It just gives you a slightly better um, declarative DSL and and also does, it numbers the test names um, as you create them. And so I'm not a big fan of RSpec. It's quite good now, but over the years, I, I definitely have debugged test suites that have bugs in them because of hacks on core. 
So I, I do believe that a testing suite should be, it, it should not hack core. It should not add any methods to any Ruby object. So I, and so, you know, test unit is fine for that. The API isn't great. That's why I have a teeny shim just to add a couple, adds like two methods to it. Test do and context do, right? They're just declaring classes and methods. I'm also a big fan in not using a DSL for assertions. So I basically have one teeny helper. I just wrap the test unit assert so that it takes a block so that all tests both assert that nothing's raised because, you know, they take a block and assert that the value is true. So this is old C style, right? That's when assertions were a macro. But the reason I like it is when it comes to porting a test suite, which you occasionally do, like when you're merging something into a bigger project, it's literally gsub. You're like, blammo, this is our assertion method. I don't like unwinding, like a, I don't like having to think about what the assertion means um, in a test suite. And I find, you know, like I, should equal match whatever. And what does that really do? Does that call triple equals or double equals on that method? You know, like, oh God, I don't want to think about that in my tests. I want to think about the domain, not the test suite. So I don't want like zero ceremony. Um, Ben Brickerhoff and I talked about this um, a lot. And another legitimate reason is for tool chains that are trying to interact with your, um, with your test suite. So for example, he was working on uh, some code at the time that was trying to parallelize your testing. So imagine that, like you want to require a library that will suddenly make your test suite run in parallel. And so, um, and this is just, this is not news, right? Like a good API is a minimal one. Right, I think everybody would agree. Ruby is super expressive. It's got match operators. It's got include. I mean, it. We do not lack expressiveness in Ruby, and so when you have a minimal test interface, it just makes it easy to do something like, yeah, I just require this one thing, and blam, all my tests run in parallel, or it shuffles them, or it runs them always in order, or ships them off to various nodes to run it in parallel. Who cares? But those kinds of that, that kind of tooling requires a minimal interface. And so I do tend to lean towards um, a very simple testing framework in all my I'm, code. I'm thinking particularly of the the A, B, C, D directories that are found in a lot of your gems and the, oh, the readmes oh, yeah. that get generated yeah. out of that. Yeah, I, I, I'm doing... Yeah, so I've... I wrote a, a testing gem a while ago. I'm a big fan of readme-driven development. Like, I, you know, if a text file doesn't cut it, there's probably an architectural problem with your code, you know. Uh, I'm not really generating docs anymore. I'm not really combinating code very heavily anymore. It's like a readme should suffice. Readme, test suite, code, like, that should be more than enough. Um, but I'm a big fan of example code. In fact, I got, you know, I was sort of famous for posting a.rb examples, but I actually stole that from Guy Deku. I mean, he was the one that introduced me to that, and um, he was this old French guy that gave a lot of examples, and his English was really poor, so he'd always give his examples in running code. And I started doing that on news groups because I found it, it was amazing how many times I thought I knew an answer, like I could explain it, but then you try to write the code and you're like, oh, actually not. It's actually, you know, there's actually this edge case. Hmm. And, you know, we're computer programmers. And English is not a context-free grammar. And programming languages are. And so, and communication, electronic communication in text is inherently difficult. So if you can explain something in a, in a minimal piece of code, that's a better answer 
than documentation, English, you know, anything in English. And so I like checking in examples of common things for the people who are going to be learning how to use the library. But honestly, I usually start there. In other words, what do I want the, how do I want the API to work? I want it to be very obvious. So I, I literally start with what do I want the example usage to look like? Now, how, how will I make that happen, right? In the, in the cleanest way. So inter interface versus implementation and, you know, an API is a user interface. It's the user interface that developers have. And then you basically roll those into a README, right? Yeah, exactly. And I've yeah, and I've had I've tried various strategies of um, I uh, yeah, a bunch of my old gems basically automatically run those, and so it's kind of like white box testing, right? So mm. I'll run the code, which will run, I'll just, you know a little rate test that runs the samples to produce the README showing the output, and I have messed with actually having some assertions around those as well. Um, it's a little tricky when it's just arbitrary string output, but I, um, just to generate it, just so that I have a little bit of a sanity check. Like, does that make sense? And it, it's kind of like, it is, it is document, it is document, it's like running RDoc on your code and that it's an automatic way of generating some documentation. It's just, instead of extracting it from comments, it's actually running programs to generate mm -hmm. the documentation. Uh, so, yeah. All right, well, we're, we're getting pretty close to our time. Are there any other things that we would be remiss in not talking about before we wrap up? I have so many questions left. <laughs> I know, I think I just yeah, sit here. here and listen to talk I've been sitting over here the whole time nodding my head, you know, just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell yeah, well, me some more bedtime stories, Uncle Hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, guess. I just have one question left, which is, can I hang out with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole shop's full of you guys, so you just have to make it down to, to, to Boulder sometime. Our, the Dojo 4 is open every Wednesday morning. Um, for Rubius who are in town, and um, yeah, anybody that's in Boulder on that day is welcome to stop by. So, all right. Well, it's it's been awesome. I mean, you've you've really answered some things for me that you know I've been thinking about for a while. So, really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks a ton, guys. All right. Well, let's let's get to the picks. Um, maybe we'll have to do this again, and then um, Avdi and James can ask the rest of their questions. Um, <laughs> Uh, James, why don't you start us off with the picks this week? Okay. In the spirit of having uh, Aira on the show, there is this thread on Celluloid uh, that sprung up around... Uh, it's on GitHub, uh, the Celluloid repository, that sprung up around one of the commits about concurrency. And uh, this thread is just like pure gold. I mean, if you're any at all interested in concurrency... It's all about people uh, arguing, you know, in a very polite, spirited programmer way over, is this thread safe? Is this not thread safe? What's the right way to uh, implement this safely? Uh, it, it features uh, Tony uh, Arcieri. <laughs> I always get that mm -hmm. name wrong. Yeah. Um, it, who we had on the show recently. And uh, Aira T. Howard is also one of the big... Uh, contributors in this thread, and I mean, they go on and uh, down to the point where Aira's linking to Cody wrote that's like pure Ruby concurrent hashes, which is just like epic. You can't read this thread and not learn something about how uh, computers work, especially in a multi-processing environment. Challenge so, accepted. Yeah, it's. <laughs> <so great. laughs> 
Uh, it's really good stuff. Go check it out. Uh, and then just for a fun pick, I think I said I was going to uh, have a good game pick like four episodes ago, and then I never got around to it. Uh, but I do have it. Um, that I've been playing this game called Sentinels of the Multiverse, uh, which is a total blast. It's a card game where you basically pick a deck of cards that represents a superhero. So everybody playing with you picks a different superhero, and then you pick a deck of cards that represents a villain. And then you pick a deck of cards that represents a location, and then those cards all get played, and so that changes the basically the game that you're playing. And everybody works together to defeat that villain in that location. It's uh, it's just a blast. So uh, great, great cooperative uh, card game if you enjoy that kind of thing. Them's my picks. Well, that looks like fun. Uh, Avdi, what are your picks? Uh, well, I think there's really only one programming-related pick I could make this week and that is to go look up Aira's repos look up his projects and and go down the list until you find something that makes you go oh my god why haven't I been using this for years uh, because I guarantee you will uh, now is can can people find all of your stuff on github now or is there still some stuff that's that's just in the code for people directories you know there's definitely a few gems that uh, you know are still just on uh, Ruby Forge, right? Or RubyGems.org. I mean, that's a, whatever. There's a big backstory there, of course. But um, there are some gems that I have not imported into GitHub. But most of the stuff that, obviously, most of the stuff that I'm actively maintaining is there. There are some gems that I never imported just because they've been stable and I haven't, you know, changed them for years and years. But those, I've got, I don't know, more than a hundred. I would say of them are imported on on, um, on GitHub. So yeah, GitHub.com/slash/aHoward. Cool. Uh, for a less programmy pick, Tom Bin bags. I've been, I've had a, a Tom Bin computer bag for many years now, and the thing is, like, looks like the day I bought it. They just, they're really, really high quality stuff. Um, I think it's Tom Bin. Bin with a B I H N. It might be Bine. I don't know. Anyway, TomBin.com, and uh, I've been incredibly impressed with their quality. I just got a new bag from them. Um, Really, actually, a new insert. They've got a cool system where where the laptop bags are actually inserts for the bigger bags, and so so I just when I switch laptops, I just got a new insert, and they have these really sturdy uh, protective inserts, and and uh, really like them. Awesome, uh, David. What are your picks? Um, so my first one is to do what uh, Era said at the beginning of the episode, and that's go to Google and type in Katrina DMSP Era T Howard. Um, and the first links you'll get back are uh, mailing list posts from Aira, which include the code that he wrote to process the images. They're small enough to fit in an email post, which is freaking awesome. My second pick is uh, that will lead you to uh, codeforpeople.com slash Katrina, which is where you can actually see the output of those images in a little uh, Java app. Uh, my other pick for today is um, I usually we pick... Uh, technical things, uh, but I'm actually going to pick Ash Dryden. Now, I know objectification of women is a bad thing, but she is actually my pick today. She is a, just a fantastic, fantastic human being, and you need to be listening to her. Uh, you, can, you can read her blog at ashdryden.com, and you can follow her on Twitter uh, as Ash Dryden. There's an E at the end of Ash. And uh, the reason uh, I, I pick her is because I live in a red state where we have 
two two political parties. We have conservatives and really crazy conservatives. And she's very much on the left side of the political spectrum. And every time I have talked to her about anything, her approach has not been um, rah, blue versus red, but rather, well, tell me what you're seeing so that I can see what you're seeing. Well, let's talk about that. And every single thing I have ever talked with her about, she has been very friendly, very warm, very helpful. And uh, her, her approach to, for example, her approach to feminism is to say, guys, if you want help, fixing any parts of anything that in you know in your your sexism thinking that you have identified as a problem I would love to help and so she's she's not confrontational she's not angry and I'm not trying to characterize you know feminists that way I, I don't want to uh, cast aspersions there what I want to do is point out that Ash is absolutely delightful to follow and to uh, to read she she will make you think uh, and she will make you a better human being so yeah so my my last pick is uh, Ash Dryden. Go read her blog or follow her on Twitter. Just, like, and, and check out her appearance on the uh, Dev Hell blog, uh, podcast. Yes. Yeah. Just the other day, I was asking about Twitter clients. My Twitter client basically just up and died. And I was asking questions, and she gave me a recommendation. And I was like, you know, I tried that one a long time ago, and I had a lot of trouble driving it from the keyboard. Can you drive it from the keyboard now? And she came back with a lot of detailed information. Yeah, it looks like they fixed all that. And stuff and then I was like oh thanks I'm trying it out or whatever and she's all and then she's all and I sent an email to their uh to them telling them they should put that accessibility information on their website she's just an incredibly thoughtful person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nice all right Katrina what are your picks I have two picks today my first so I'll be picked all of uh era's gems I'm gonna pick main just because I like writing command line programs and Maine is awesome. Um, the other pick today is sort of more lighthearted. It's CGP Grey, um, a YouTube channel with little four minute sort of factual um, videos. And they're a lot of fun. It's everything from like, what is, what is a leap year to is Pluto a planet to can Texas secede from the union, um, historical misconceptions. Uh, the Hollands and the Nether, I mean, it goes on and on. It's great fun. If you like Vi Heart, um, you may enjoy Gray. Nice. All right. There goes my afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to be playing with Maine for hours, right? All right. So my first pick is something that I got for my wife for her birthday, which is on Saturday. So by the time you get this, it will have been last Saturday. Anyway, um, it is a designer habitat. It's a floating adjustable shelf wall mount bracket. I'm reading this off of uh, Amazon. Um, But basically, it's a wall mount for DVD players. You can also put like an Xbox or a PlayStation in it. And uh, it's really, really awesome looking. And it also looks like I'm getting this for um, we have a TV in our bathroom so my wife can soak in the tub and watch the TV. And um, this looks like you can actually, once you have the DVD or um, Blu-ray player in it, um, you can fold it up against the wall. And then you can fold it back down um, to put another disc in and then push it back up so that it's out of the way. And so uh, I'm I'm super excited to, to put that in, and that way she can watch her movies while she's soaking in the tub. Um, the other pick that I have, this is something that we do every year. Um, I don't know if I'm going to pick it every year. But um, we're going to the Parade of Homes in St. George, Utah. St. George is the place is one of those places where 
it's warmer than the Salt Lake and Utah County area where uh, Dave and I live. And so a lot of people kind of retire down there and they retire down there with lots of money. And so the Parade of Homes is a lot of fun to go through because um, a good portion of the homes are million dollar plus homes. Um, and you get a lot of great ideas for things you can do in your house. We always go with my father-in-law, who's a general contractor, so he's always like uh, taking pictures and stuff, and and uh, getting excited over some things and being disgusted over you know shortcuts that they took that nobody else sees. But uh, anyway, it's a lot of fun. I know that they do them in other areas as well. So um, if you are in an area that does a parade of homes, you know, go check it out. Uh, Aero, what are your picks? Well, I have two serious ones and one just small, small fun one. Um, so both of my picks, um, the serious ones are surrounding um, ideas of subjectivity and objectivity. I think, you know, developers consider themselves to be extremely rational and objective human beings. But in fact, almost everything we do is based on subjectivity and is, you know, it's therefore it's, it's faith-based. And because, you know, programming is, it's inherently a solitary subjective, and ultimately it's a creative pursuit, I think it's important that people, developers, work to understand the basic mechanics and limitations of their own thought processes and worldviews, um, which I do believe most developers uh, think is quite, quite objective. So the, the first, uh, first one would just be a link to a Wikipedia page about Goidel's incompleteness theorem, which, um, uh, for those of you computer scientists that don't know this, he's the father of computer science, um, but his work has deep, deep implications uh, about the limits of rationalism and mathematics, um, specifically the proof that pure rationalism, pure mathematics, um, you can prove is actually in it's inconsistent and it contains contradictions and falsehoods by definition. So that's a very interesting work to start reading about and to consider uh, what, the, what the implications are on the limits of uh, objective thought. The other one, um, cool. sort, of on, sort of on the other end of the spectrum, is actually a very simple, almost like book for, for idiots on, on Buddhism by the Dalai Lama. And the reason that I'm linking to it is, it's, it, it, for me, and I'm a very objective person, um, it has given the best objective description of subjective reality that I've found. It's just very, it's a very clear, easy to, uh, to understand uh, for an objective person description of subjective reality, which is something that, you know, we live in all day being developers, and I don't think we think about it at all. And the last one is uh, my, my favorite, I said I don't browse the internet much, and I don't, but I've been hanging out on artsy.net quite a bit, and uh, it's just a link to a picture that I've had on my, uh, had open in my browser for about two weeks. I'm not sure why I'm fascinated by it, but I am. What was the name of the book, Aaron? Uh, oh, the name of the book is uh, How to Practice, and uh, it'll just be a link to the book on Amazon. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again for coming, Era. It has been awesome. And I, I'm, this is another one of those episodes. We've, we've had a ton of them this year. Uh, the episodes where I'm just like, I got to go back and listen to this one like two or three times. Um, but really appreciate you coming. It's, it's really been uh, terrific. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm glad you guys are doing this for the community.
Thanks, Sarah. It was awesome to have you on. Yeah, thanks a lot.